Hi, this is Garrett Wong. I played Ensign Kim on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that is eagerly anticipating the big day. That big day being First Contact Day, which is 41 years away from today as you're listening. Slightly over 41 years as I record. I'm your host Craig and we're here to discuss our annual Star Trek First Contact special where we've selected a Star Trek thing to talk about. And joining me for this is Angus, being exposed to a new Star Trek thing for the first time. Hello. Hello. Yes, I am back. I'm back for another round. Another round, another Star Trek round. I said new Star Trek thing, it's an old Star Trek thing, but new for you. Well, I don't know, we might get into that. Okay. (laughs) I'm sure it'll come up as we discuss. So we're going to discuss Star Trek Nemesis, the 10th Star Trek film, or the fourth starring the crew of The Next Generation, one of the widely criticised Star Trek movies. It weirdly broke the trend of the even number ones are considered good and the odd numbered ones are considered bad but apparently if you include Galaxy Quest as a Star Trek film it rounds it out and it fixes that (laughs) discrepancy because that makes Galaxy Quest the 10th Star Trek film but we'll talk about what we think of Nemesis I don't think it's that bad but we'll get into it and yeah 41 years until First Contact Day but also this film came out in 2002 so we're talking about it the year of its 20th anniversary which is insane to think about. Happy 20th, Nemesis. Yeah. Also, the only Star Trek film to come out the same year as a Star Wars film. I don't know if that's still true, but it was at the time. It was pivotal in that respect. Came out the same year as Attack of the Clones. I was trying to work out. I was thinking it must have been Attack of the Clones. Presumably that did quite a lot better than this one did at the box office. Yeah, though, Nemesis came out, as I recall, certainly in the UK, around about Christmas time, December time. I think it was destined to fail because they didn't bother really marketing it and so on. And we can discuss the franchise potential of the Star Trek franchise as blockbuster cinema, because I don't think it necessarily amounts to that. But yeah, we'll get into that. But before we do that, without spoiling, let's not spoil this 20-year-old film for people that might not have seen it and listening to this bit. What did you think of Nemesis without spoilers? Well, was it last year that I said I hadn't seen it before? Upon watching it again, I was thinking, this does seem familiar. Maybe I have seen it before. But I think that probably was kind of evidence as to how much of an impression it left on me. If indeed I have seen it before, probably only once. Yeah, it was it was familiar. There was stuff in there that I thought, yeah, I've definitely seen this. But as I say, it didn't grip me back then and I'd erased all memory of it from my mind. How good could I really find it? How good could it be? Maybe you just didn't find your inner Star Trek fandom at that point in your life when you last saw it. Well, I don't know because I think that I would have just watched anything. I used to come home and just put the, the episodes on the TV. I don't have any standout memories of that. I just know that it was kind of something that used to go on and I would watch it. And it was the same with the films as well. I mean, when they came out, it was Star Trek. It was sci-fi. So it was just something I was interested in and I would watch it. And I think that's maybe how it's managed to wash over me. Maybe because I wasn't at that fanatic level of being into it. I don't want to diminish it by saying it was background noise or it was just another piece of media that I consumed. But I do kind of feel like it took that sort of place in my life where I would watch these. And I'm fairly sure now I've seen all of the Next Generation movies, or I had. 
at the time. But yes, if you'd asked me, probably did ask me last year when we said we were going to do this next, I probably said, don't know if I've seen it, can't remember seeing it. And I don't know, but we probably had exactly the same discussion about each one of these. Every year, I just say the same thing. I'm sure last year you mentioned Tom Hardy's in that one. Let's do that one next year. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it at some point. Might as well be next year. Yeah. Normally, I can pass this off to Natalie and she can say, oh, I don't know anything about this. And maybe I could just use that as a bit of a shield to be like, oh, I've seen it. I can use her as the as complete novice. No buffer this year. No, not at all. So I'm having to take it all on the chin. <laughs> So what did you actually think of it then, having revisited it or visited it? I found myself thinking, could this have been an episode? I know that towards the end, it's a bit more final. It kind of comes to some conclusions and stuff. I was thinking, why does this have to be a film? Why isn't this a feature length episode of the TV show? And I know that however many years have gone by and films have gone by as well. But I kind of used to think of the films, again, this might have just been my naive childish brain watching them at the time. I used to think of them as being bigger events than the TV show and obviously the TV show kind of moves along but each episode wraps up and things kind of come to a conclusion and the the crew can move on to the next adventure in the series but yeah I just found this one a bit like that it was kind of episodic and it it didn't really grip me or or make me think that even though there are these stakes of weapons of mass destruction and things like that I didn't feel like the jeopardy was there that there was something bigger at stake but then maybe again that might just be another symptom of how we think about blockbuster movies nowadays and there's got to be a threat the whole universe is under attack. What do you think? I like Nemesis. I've always liked Nemesis. I do acknowledge it's problematic and it's not as good as it could have been. And there were some questionable decisions made, such as hiring Stuart Baird as a director, a guy that knows absolutely nothing about Star Trek and clearly doesn't care about Star Trek. I've actually listened to director's commentary that he did. It's on the DVD and the Blu-ray, where he just talks about, yeah, it's Star Trek and I'm not really into Star Trek. So I was just looking to see what I could change. And it was things like, I want to make the consoles blue for some reason, the graphics on the consoles instead of the yellows and whatever that you would see on the normal displays in the TV series. I'll make them blue because that's something I can change. Whereas you're locked into all this. The uniforms are what they are. The ship is what it is. The cast are what they are. There's only so much you can really do. But Stuart Baird's not known as a director either. He's an editor. He edited Gladiator and so on. So it was confusing that they hired him, especially when Jonathan Frakes is right there and had done the last two. Yeah, how does that happen? How does it come about that someone who had previously directed Executive Decision and US Marshals is given a Star Trek property? I don't know. I think it was a paramount decision. For some reason, they wanted some prestige attached to it, and that meant Stuart Baird. Or maybe they owed him a favour. I don't (laughs) know. Maybe he had a couch to pay off. And it's like, yeah, just do this film, whatever. But it's confusing when you've got Jonathan Frakes, who apparently was willing to do it, Because he Mm -hmm. talked about it after the fact and he said, they didn't even ask me, so whatever. All I did was direct the most financially successful Star Trek film in First Contact, but whatever. (laughs) Maybe after Insurrection, it's like, nah, we're not letting this guy loose again, or (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) He's gearing up to make Thunderbirds at this point, that's a couple of years off. I don't know why they didn't ask Freaks, I think it would have been better. Although, there are problems with the script, and Brent Spiner has a hand in the script, as does John Logan. They're both good writers. There's just issues there, I think they did a lot of cutting away from what it was supposed to be because I remember the trailer was like a generation's final journey and so on so it was geared up as a finale for the next generation cast because they're getting on a bit and they have to move on and do other things or we need to reinvigorate the franchise in some way it's a bit like star trek 6 in that respect how it's yeah we're going to use this as a send-off although star trek 6 is a really great send-off where this is kind of not a send-off 
I wondered about that. Obviously, they knew this was going to be the send-off. You'd think, okay, let's get someone who loves it to come in and give it the send-off it deserves. On the other hand, is it because it was kind of tailing off that they thought, okay, we'll get this guy who's directed two movies, just give it to him. He's been on the books for a while. He's edited a few things for us. Yeah, well, the Star Trek franchise was on the outs at this point. Insurrection didn't do particularly well. They made this one for some reason on the back of that. Enterprise was tanking in the ratings. It was in its third season at the time, I think, and they had renewed it for a fourth, but I think the writing was on the wall. So it looked like Star Trek was going to be killed off for a while. It was heading that way, and I think the people at Paramount weren't interested in it. It's more they were contracted to make this. This was a contractual obligation Mm -hmm. that they had to make, but once they got rid of it, then the franchise sat in fallow for such a long time. I mean, it wasn't until 2009 that we saw more Star Trek after Enterprise finished, which was in 2005. It's only four years, right enough. But if you think about it, it feels like a long time. It's seven years between films. Pretty long by nowadays standards, I suppose, for a franchise to gather dust. Although it's still happening with the Star Trek film franchise, isn't it? Because <laughs> you had 2009 and three years until Into Darkness and then three years again until Beyond. And we're going to be like four years until whatever the next one's called. Mm. It seems to be cinematically they don't care about this franchise. And then people just forget about it because you've got Marvel, you've got DC, you've got all these other franchises churning stuff out regularly to keep you on your toes. And I always think that Star Trek has better potential on television anyway. I'd rather watch a Star Trek TV series than a film realistically because they can do more they can spend more time with stuff and that's not to say the films are bad some of them are great but there is more potential on television because if you look at this one there's only two characters that get to do anything for example where mm-hmm. you've got an ensemble cast it works in the original series films because that only had three main characters anyway kirk spock and mccoy so as long as you give them plenty of screen time the others can just say stuff and they don't really need anything to go with so that's fine but in next generation it was very much an ensemble you'd have a crusher episode a Riker episode a data episode and so on so you would get a good mix of the cast yeah whereas in the films you don't and definitely in this one you don't yeah it's a shame because as you say the tv show has the scope for spreading the love around giving different members of the cast a look in every now and then and in the films if they're kind of just background characters or set dressing it is a bit of a shame when you can see them back there but they don't have anything to do especially with there being a finale or supposed to be a finale so yeah most of the characters it's are they going somewhere i don't know yeah, it should have been a swan song for them all, but uh, instead they just get to kind of stand around mourning people. Yeah, although I don't think it was the actors that had decided we're not doing this anymore. I think it was just, again, Paramount had decided we're going to make this the last one with this lot. We're just not going to do them again. Patrick Stewart costs too much money. Although he reportedly took a pay cut to be in this film and funneled some of his salary back into the budget. And I think Brent Spiner did the same, although he got paid twice because he wrote some of it. <laughs> yeah, so he was like, oh, I'm happy to. <laughs> To give up some of my salary, I'll keep the writing credit and the writing money. Of course. But Nemesis, I think it's good and I think it has a lot of potential, but I don't think it lives up to that potential. But we'll definitely get into the sort of ins and outs of what it's trying to do. I think it looks great, actually. Visually, it really holds up. The CGI is very good. They use some practical effects as well in there so there's a good mix of stuff that they're doing in terms of the visual aesthetic of it so you can't really fault how it looks and in terms of the quality of the film i actually think the 2009 film if you look at them based on a script level they're both about the same in terms of quality i just think the 2009 film was produced better i don't know they kind of strike me differently the 2009 is very kind of glossy and it was this kind of reboot and rehash almost i feel like the goodwill or the prestige that was built up through the years of tv show and, and kind of knowing those characters and hoping to see them getting into an adventure in this film they feel like two different prospects to me yeah i think we discussed it in last year as well the problem with the films is they try to turn picard into an 
an action hero, which is not what he is, not what he ever was. Yeah. Even in this one, he's flying fighters, he's gunning people down. Hand-to-hand combat, yeah, all kinds of stuff. Doing some driving, some high-speed yes. drivings. Yeah, he's really action hero it up. Yeah, he really chose this time to come out as an adrenaline junkie. Yeah, it's very strange decisions being made in, in these films, but it's difficult to turn an ensemble-driven TV show into a two-hour film because you need to focus on something. And it was always Picard and Data, all four next-gen films, obviously one they partially share with some of the original series cast. They all feature Picard and Data prominently with the others just kind of weaving in and out. And do you think that's to their advantage? In some cases, because in First Contact, I don't feel like characters get shortchanged particularly. Riker is his own plot. Mm-hmm. on Earth with Zephyr Cochrane and Troy's in there and she gets plenty to do. Crusher gets stuff to do. They all get meaningful moments in First Contact. Everybody does. Even in Insurrection, everybody gets maybe a brief one, but a meaningful moment of some sort. Whereas in this, most of them don't. Yeah, so I wonder if they've identified the Picard-Data relationship as being the standout comes to the fore in these movies and is really what they kind of lean on. Yeah, it was kind of most popular characters. It helps if you're writing it as well, I suppose. It does, <laughs> That's why Scotty gets so much to do in Star Trek Beyond, because Simon Pegg's writing it. <laughs> but shall we move into spoilers so we can dig right into what works and what doesn't? Let's go for it. Go spoiler alert. Okay, let us start with, I guess, the story. So the story is fairly simple. We have an evil Picard clone looking to commit genocide, and that's about it. <laughs> evil young Picard played by Tom Hardy in one of his early roles probably one that he wouldn't like to admit to now I'd love to interview Tom Hardy and be like do you remember being a nemesis and he'd be like nah I read that his reaction to how this was received wasn't great or his experiences on this took him down a bit of a dark path oh right yeah drink drugs maybe I don't think he had a great time after it I think he was expecting this to be kind of a big break and I don't know whether or not it was properly that sort of launch pad he was expecting and now he's Venom well, yes. It's all turned around for him. <laughs> now he's in another weird franchise that it's strange that people enjoy, but they do. <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking at the time, Tom Hardy, very, very good in this role. And there's interesting things that they did. Like in the script, they wrote his dialogue to match the pattern of Patrick Stewart's speech. Uh-huh. It's not something I notice, but apparently that's something that happens. And Tom Hardy went and studied Patrick Stewart to not mimic his performance, but some of the inflections. I think him being in it is one of the most interesting things about this film for me. I think it's a bit like that whenever you have an actor who at the time was coming up, or I suppose when you first saw this, you had no idea what kind of a career he would go on to have. But it's interesting 20 years later, seeing him at this early stage and with all that, not baggage, but everything we know about him, all the performances we've seen since then. That was probably what I was looking at most watching this was every time he was on screen just kind of thinking oh look look at young Tom Hardy thinking about <laughs> comparing it to all these other things I've seen him in and that was another thing about thinking that I'd seen this before because the imagery the characters that are specifically that character there were bits of it where I was thinking oh yeah I've, I've definitely seen this but at the time back then wouldn't really meant anything to me that it was Tom Hardy he was just the baddie in this film but I watched it completely differently this time because of all that Hardy history young scrawny Tom Hardy he's very scrawny in this film yeah, I mean, we're quite used to seeing him quite bulked up and buff now, but <laughs> yes, this is a different looking Tom Hardy. The first Star Trek convention I went to, I got to ask Patrick Stewart a question and I asked him, of the actors that have played younger yous, James McAvoy and Tom Hardy, which is your favourite? And he was like, when did Tom Hardy play a younger me? And he was like, oh yeah, Nemesis. And then, oh yeah, Tom Hardy, definitely. You've seen the size of him. That's younger me, definitely. <laughs> Although James McAvoy bulked up for Split. 
I presume Tom Hardy was wearing a prosthetic nose in this because he looked a little bit uncanny to begin with because you're like, okay, that's young Tom Hardy. I can see now that's Tom Hardy. But there was something didn't look quite right about him. And I think later on in the film, towards the conclusion when he and Picard come face to face, I thought, oh yes, I can see now. They've kind of sculpted this nose because... Patrick Stewart's got quite a distinctive face, but his nose in particular, I don't think Tom Hardy's real nose looks like that. So you can see them in profile. It's like, oh yes, they've done a good study of Patrick Stewart's nose here. And they have the burst lip as well, the constantly burst lip. Mm-hmm. He's been roughed up a bit. He's had a rough upbringing. Poor old shins on, he's not fared too well up to this point. No, and they even mention the treatment that he's had, and that's why he doesn't look exactly as Picard might remember himself looking at that age. Yeah, in that one photograph that he shows of his younger self. <laughs> It looks like Tom Hardy, which, by the way, a nitpick early on can't be a younger Picard because he had hair when he was at the Academy. That is canon. It's well established that he only lost his hair sometime after taking command of the Stargazer. Because you see flashbacks of him taking Wesley Crusher's dad's body to Crusher and he has hair in those flashbacks. Was it stress-related hair loss, do you think? Maybe it's just his exams were coming up and his hair fell out. Maybe that's what it was. I don't know. It's not a big deal, but it was just this. Remember him? It's like, no, I don't, because that's not you. That's clearly not you. I wonder if Tom Hardy's old enough to be as young as Picard was in the first season of Next Generation. I don't think he is. I don't think he's quite there yet. He might be. He wasn't Patrick Stewart, I don't know, what is he in his 40s? 40s, yeah. I think he was in his 40s. Because Picard was always written to be older than he was. Right. Picard was in his 50s. Okay. We could look it up, but we're not going to. Or I just have. Oh, you have? Okay. He is 44 years old. 44 years old. Okay. Maybe he is old enough to be Patrick Stewart now. I know that Will Wheaton recently reached the age Patrick Stewart was when he started Next Generation. <laughs> <laughs> just if you want to feel really old. <laughs> just think about that. Yeah, it's just another milestone that I'm passing, making me feel even older. Yeah, it was one of those things, like, in my mind, Nemesis didn't come out that long ago, but it was 20 years ago, which is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's one of the newer films. It's one of the newer... Yeah, it wasn't that long. It was only four films ago, which was 20 years ago, apparently. (laughs) It's a film every five years, basically. But his plot's a bit more involved than just genocide. At first, he wants to lure the Enterprise to Romulus, where he's taken over somehow, with his weird radiation that kills Alan Dale, who plays the Romulan in the opening sequence. Yes, that made me think of... uh, This is a spoiler for No Time to Die. It made me think of the Spectre Party, where... Mm. The poison is released there and then everyone begins not really melting as such, but similar sort of thing happens. Yeah, there's probably a number of riffs on that throughout the years in in cinema, I would imagine. But yeah, that's a relevant recent example, I suppose. But Alan Dale in his one scene cameo as the Romulan. Alan Dale famous for dying of heart attacks in things that I've seen him in. In Neighbours, he died of a heart attack. In The O.C., he died of a heart attack. In this, I assume he had a heart attack just before the radiation consumed him. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of a heart attack specialist. He is. That's what he does. When he appears, that's how he will die. You've got to have your niche. And if you're good at it, stick with it. Yeah. He kills the Romulan Senate and then he's like, I'm in charge now. And everyone says, okay. (laughs) (laughs) He gets to be in charge. But he wants to steal Picard's blood so that he can survive because he's got some weird genetic stuff that wasn't activated and it's just now killing him. And I actually found the way that they lured the Enterprise quite interesting because normally in Star Trek it's you're the closest ship even though we have a fleet of them and it just so happens to always be you. But in this it was actually we've lured them with the android that we got a hold of somehow. The Soong android that we got a hold of. Don't know how we got a hold of that. It's not important. We're not going to tell you. It doesn't matter. But we'll lure you near to the neutral zone and then that means that Starfleet will send you by virtue of you being closest 
Although I would have accepted, we're going to send you because it's the flagship and the Romulans are a big deal. We want to put our best foot forward for these negotiations. Mm. But the luring was, it's not rocket science, but it works. You do get the sense that there is a carefully laid out plan. Yes, and it gives them an excuse to get the dune buggy out. Of course, the Argo. Although you have to question Shinzon's timetable because lures the Enterprise there fine, and then when they're there, he makes them wait 17 hours before he appears, then has a bit of dinner, then waits another few hours, and then kidnaps Picard and seems to get on with it. Maybe he's overconfident, feels like his plan is foolproof, but it just feels like he's needlessly putting it to the wire. He's like a cat toying with a mouse. (laughs) But then mouse will escape somehow if he doesn't strike now. But it's just (laughs) weird. I'm just going to wait essentially a couple of days before I do anything. (laughs) When I only have a couple of days left to live. Yeah, no need for urgency. (laughs) My face is turning blue as we speak, but it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Yeah. Balik Shinzon as a character, one of the major themes in this film is the duality and nature versus nurture. And I like the whole idea of Picard gets to see how he could have turned out if he hadn't had a privileged upbringing. And Shinzon kind of gets to see how he could have turned out if his life had been better. Obviously, even if the Romulan plan had went as planned, he wouldn't have had a good life. He would have been essentially enslaved in a different way and forced to do something else, which is something to ponder. It's not something the film goes into, but it's more the mirror image thing of it it comes up a couple of times where Picard is faced with an uncomfortable bit of potential that lives within him they don't specifically point out the whole no it's because of your upbringing your experiences that you are who you are even though they do have that scene where data just essentially says that (laughs) (laughs) but they don't go into too much detail with it there is a really good scene where Picard almost gets through to him when Shinzon's a hologram and to prove he's a hologram he walks through the table which is a common thing they do with holograms in films. They make sure they walk through something just to cement the fact. They're not really there, okay? But in that scene, Picard almost gets through to him. You can see Shinzon waver a bit, and it's it's too late and whatever. And then he just doubles down on his mad plan after that point. But Picard is almost there. He almost has him convinced. So do you think then that there is an argument for nature? If you think Picard does see some of that potential in himself, he must think that there's something within him rather than something that's been an outward force on him? Yeah, it's a common thing in fiction, isn't it? Where they do the nature versus nurture thing. And there's always the, there's a piece of me inside of you. It's never been nurtured and you can draw on it. I'm not giving up on you because I feel like there's something within you there. I mean, we don't know for sure whether it's entirely nature or entirely nurture that shapes who people are because genes are different. So you'll be genetically disposed to behave in different ways or develop in different ways. So that has to come into it as well. It's a common thing, especially in science fiction, people fighting their better or worse natures mm-hmm. even in star wars kylo ren is fighting his innate goodness isn't he until they abandon that and don't do anything with it <laughs> that's what he's doing and it keeps coming up in different things so yeah i think there's a bit of both i think the nurture element of it is what has created them but there's probably a bit either way in both of them there's the potential for picard to go a bit nuts you see it in first contact where he becomes murderous yeah you know when the borg push him at the breaking point It's definitely more interesting to foster the notion that there is something within us or within him as a character that could potentially be triggered or tripped or whatever, rather than saying, I could never turn out like that because I've had this life and you've had a completely different life. And that would be completely (laughs) separating them, whereas it's always far more interesting for the goody and the baddie to be able to relate to one another. Yeah. And again, the film doesn't give you an awful lot of time on that because it wants to skip to the space battle. (laughs) But... 
it's there and I think it's interesting. And even the way Shinzon behaves, I don't entirely believe that he's acting. During the dinner scene, for example, I do believe that there is a genuine desire for companionship and for identity and for purpose there. I don't think that he's just trying to fool Picard the entire way. He's making an overture about peace, which turns out to be a deception. But what if Picard had turned around and been like, yep, cool, give us a contract. We'll sign it right now. This sounds great. <laughs> I don't know what would have happened after that point. Like, oh, there is no contract. <laughs> <laughs> Hastily scribble something on a napkin. <laughs> <laughs> we are allies now. Tick here for yes. <laughs> <laughs> But that is a good scene because it's Shinzon curious about his beginnings, I guess his genetic beginnings, I suppose, because he asks questions, were we Picard's always warriors or explorers or whatever? And it shows that he sees the world in a different way because his first question is warriors. I may have missed where this clone came from. Could you educate me? It's not in canon when they stole DNA and cloned them. Crusher says it was hair or skin hair. For to say that to Picard, that's kind of funny. I mean, I know he's a little bit here, but that's funny. That would have to be a really sneaky Romulan to steal some of his hair, wouldn't it? Well, that might explain where it's all gone. If all of his enemies are stealing his thinning hair. Yeah, so it's not in canon when that happened, when the DNA was stolen. There's probably a novel that, explains it or okay so it's just accepted that at some point yeah okay picard goes around a lot there's the episodes of the next generation where he's on romulus the ones with spock in them he's on romulus it could happen then i'll take your word for it doesn't matter it just happens at some point but it's it's a strange plan we're gonna clone high level starfleet people and replace them so does that mean there's other ones flying about other prominent starfleet clones kicking about in the mines Are the mines entirely staffed by <laughs> my Starfleet clones? And Ron Perlman. And Ron Perlman. Those two things. Human clones and Ron Perlman <laughs> in the mines. No one else. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think Shinzon could have been a better villain if they'd had time. And I know that one of the, I guess, mission statements going into this film was, we're going to do Wrath of Khan, but for Next Generation. And you can see what they're doing there. I, I don't know if you have seen or can remember Wrath of Khan. Vaguely, and I have seen comparisons between Wrath of Khan and this film. Some quite close ones, actually. But yeah, I mean, go on if you can rattle them off. Well, it's more just the general sense of taking on an opponent that matches you or supersedes you in every way. Someone from your past, kind of, that's not really from Picard's past. He's never met Shinzon before. (laughs) He's met himself. He's seen himself in the mirror, so it kind of counts. There's Mm -hmm. the death of the second-in-command, so to speak, or the close friend and the potential resurrection of said close friend. Yes, attempting to stop a doomsday device. Yeah, a space battle. When you saw this the first time, did you just think, oh, they've ripped off Wrath of Khan? Or were you thinking this is a love letter to Wrath of Khan? This is an homage to Wrath of Khan? I think it's different enough, other than the suggestion of Data will come back in a future film, perhaps, that we're never <laughs> going to make. But he'll be back in a TV show we're going to make in like 18, 19 years. Somehow. That's what's going to happen. But at the time, I don't remember it annoying me that it was riffing on Wrath of Khan because I think it isn't as egregious as, say, Into Darkness is <laughs> with its referencing. You don't have someone yelling Shinzon at the top of their voice, for example. <laughs> I was wondering whether I would have to bring up Into Darkness or if you would, but of course. There you go. Mark that one off on your bingo cards. Yeah, that's it. Give it its kicking. It's been a while. <laughs> I think this is significantly better than Into Darkness, by the way. It's way better. (laughs) In case anyone was in any doubt whatsoever about that. 
Yeah. So I think the Wrath of Khan referencing is pretty on the nose, obviously, because of the ending, the death of a prominent character is basically the same. But I don't think it's stepping on the toes in the same way that Into Darkness is, because it is trying to do something a bit different. The villain interaction side of it is very different. They're using a different villain, of course, and they're trying to make it more about Picard, sort of. And I think it succeeds at that. I think it succeeds at being different enough. Mm-hmm. It is the first time that they try to remake Wrath of Khan. And then they did it again in 2009. 2009 has more overt references to Wrath of Khan than this does. And Into Darkness obviously has way more <laughs> references to Wrath of Khan than this does. It's the wrong idea. Stop trying to remake Wrath of Khan. When you want to give the next generation its Wrath of Khan, you already did that. It was called First Contact. But, you know, if it ain't broke, remake it. <laughs> I mean, it is broken by this point. <laughs> I think we've taken about as much as we can get out of Wrath of Khan at this point. I don't think there's anything left. Be careful what you wish for. Oh, God. Yeah. What's going to happen? TV show will get around to it at some point, I guess. What did you think of the plot? I don't think there's much of it, weirdly, but do you think it flowed well? Was there any particular points of it that stood out to you that were either good or bad? In terms of the villain plot and the crew plot, I suppose... I felt like the doomsday device being set up in the beginning, the threat of it, I felt, fades until quite close to the end of the film. So it was almost as if that was introduced and then it's more about the villain himself. He kind of takes over as the main plot point in this, as you've mentioned, the sort of duality between him and Picard. And it becomes a a kind of personal sort of thing, one-on-one between them. But yeah, I agree. It's fairly thin on plot. There's nothing too complex, really. The Shinzon stuff, I don't think it's taken far enough. If you're facing yourself or you're facing a clone of yourself, I think there's more they could have done. I just don't think it's explored in the way that I would have liked it to have been. I'd probably try and go a bit more disturbing in terms of what it would be like (laughs) to face someone who basically as you i feel like the borg plot with john luke picard is more affecting to me i think his interactions there or his being assimilated seems more effective than encountering a clone of himself which i do think should be on that level of it's not body horror but it's almost approaching that where you're seeing a younger version of you that's being corrupted so it could have taken it further in that direction yeah the borg are a better adversary for him because they did something to him Mm mm-hmm they took something from him. They took away his individuality, his identity, and he got it back, but he still blames them for that. And that's the impetus in First Contact. That's him on that mission of revenge. He loses his objectivity because he can't see past his connection to the Borg and he wants to destroy them. He wants to hurt them. And that's a really interesting conflict that he goes through. Whereas in this, it's, yeah, this clone, whatever, they did that. There was nothing I could do about it. And now it's trying to kill me. It's basically a different person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's what I wanted to ask. Do you think if Shinzon wasn't a clone of him, if he was just another baddie, another guy with a... With a grudge. With a grudge, yeah. How much would it have affected? Because we've obviously said that there are themes in the movie that wouldn't be there if it weren't for the clone aspect, but could it have worked if he was just another guy with a grudge? I don't think you would have to change too much, but then you would have had to get rid of the whole mirroring theme, because you wouldn't have been able to do that. Someone he went to the academy with that turns against them. I don't know what would it be instead. They really wanted to do this, your dark side side of it, which Mm -hmm. they didn't quite accomplish because Shinzon is, even though he's the raw material, as Picard puts it himself, is the same. He is different. Apparently one of the early concepts was that Patrick Stewart was going to play both roles, which might have bolstered that more effectively. And nowadays he probably would in a Will Smith sort of way. Yeah, but then you have to pay him twice. He's already taken a pay cut. (laughs) <laughs> He's not going to take. You take a pick up for both of your roles. 
you're not going to get them a second time for Tom Hardy money. (laughs) (laughs) But they could have easily done it because there would only have been a couple of instances of split screen, really, because most of the time they chat on view screens. Mm -hmm. There would have been, what, two scenes, three scenes that they share screen time? Not what I mean about that. Yeah, where you just need to get some other bald guy to kind of stand in where you shoot over the shoulder. <laughs> I mean, they had stand-ins on The Next Generation and on the films as well, so it'd be easy enough. <laughs> Stunt guys for all his action beats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, could have easily done it. Get Vin Diesel in just to, to chill out. Maybe Vin Diesel plays the younger Picard as well, why not? <laughs> that would have been very different. Fast and Furious was just beginning around this time, wasn't it? 2001 was the first one, wasn't it? Yes. I find it very difficult to try and place this because even when you say 2002, you then start thinking about everything else that was happening around then. And it's strange to think that we've had so many Fast and the Furious movies since then. (laughs) And then, like we've said, everything that Tom Hardy's gone on to do, you mentioned Star Wars, and that has obviously changed dramatically since then. Come a long way. It's very weird. It's a weird pocket of time that this film exists in. 2002, not terribly significant in terms of franchising, I suppose. Mm. But another thing with Picard in this one is the idea that his kids are growing up, so to speak. They're all fleeing the nest. Riker's going off to be a captain on the Titan. There's dialogue that's missing from the film, scenes that are missing from the film where Dr. Crusher's off to go Starfleet Medical. Data's going to be his first officer. So there's a sense that what was familiar to him is changing, and that's going to be jarring in itself. You have his wedding speech where he does nothing but talk about himself, which is really weird. I mean, I'm not married. Well, maybe not, obviously. I'm not married, but if my best man stood up at my wedding and just said stuff like that, I'd be like... Get on to what you're supposed to be talking about. Because <laughs> he starts off by saying, I have commanded men in battle. I have negotiated peace treaties between enemies. I have made first contact with so many species. And now I'm best man. And Riker's moving on to the Titan. And I'm going to be training my new first officer. Oh, yeah, by the way, well done on the wedding. Great to see you kids together. Congratulations. <laughs> His speech is largely about himself. Thank you for attending my presentation on the <laughs> Diana even says to him after it was a lovely toast. It wasn't. It was a really <laughs> selfish, self-absorbed. Well, they have to say that. They have to suck up to him. <laughs> Whose idea was it to make him your best man? <laughs> Picard really your best friend? No, he's not. It was an order. <laughs> yeah, <that> was, <laughs> I'm only giving you the time off if you make me your best man. That's why he took the promotion, because he got refused his time off. So he was like, screw it, I'll go on my own ship. <laughs> but there was a running theme on the show where Riker was always hesitant to move on to the big chair. The weirdest thing is he gets offered his first command during season one and decides he's going to stay. And then it happens again in season three. In the best of both worlds, he's been offered a command. And then it doesn't happen again in the show. Maybe they just stopped offering him commands after that because you're never going to take the job. But the whole idea is he likes his job. He likes being on the Enterprise and that's it. He's comfortable staying there. And we discussed it last year. The insurrection is, in a way, him realising that he's ready to move on and be a captain, be in charge of his own crew. Again, it doesn't fully come across, but it's in there. It's that side of it. And now he has taken on the role and he's getting ready to build his own family, so to speak. So the theme is the kids are fleeing the nest, even with the the beach buggy thing. The Argo, it's like he's bought the Porsche. (laughs) He's ready to just chill out in his golden years. Embrace the midlife crisis. Or the late life, well, midlife for him, I guess. I don't know. Did you get that sense? Did that feel prominent enough to you? Or was that just a thing that was in there? Yeah, I think with Riker 
choosing to. I suppose that was evident. The stuff with data, I don't know if he chooses it so much. They're kind of setting it up because they're discussing what makes him him and how this other B4 version of him isn't the same because of the experiences they don't share. But yeah, I think it's the same with the way that we mentioned that the rest of the crew is a bit sidelined. It's not as if we're getting the full moving on experience. I, I do think if it had been a proper send-off, then you might have seen a bit more of that. It might have been a bit more developed. And you mentioned stuff that didn't make it into the movie. I'm not sure if there's other bits and pieces that were cut as well, but a bit half-baked maybe. It, they could have leaned more heavily on it. Maybe that would have been cynical because it would have been a bit pulling on the heartstrings or whatever because it's this beloved group of characters that will be together for the last time. What do you think? Do you think that it achieved that? Not really, because they cut the crusher thing, so it only looks like Riker mm-hmm. Troy are the only two leaving, according to the final cut of the film. Actually, Will Wheaton's in the film, but his one scene was cut as well. He has one dialogue scene where he just says a bunch of techno babble. He's going to be on the Titan with Riker in that deleted scene. And right. they cut his dialogue because it's rubbish. It's just, he goes up and says, oh yeah, our warp engine's powered by this or something. I can't remember the exact dialogue, but it's just nonsense. It just doesn't mean anything. But you see him in the long shot, he's there and Whoopi Goldberg's there as well. Yeah, they use the wedding as a bit of a, here's all your favourites. <laughs> Well, pan across them <laughs> <laughs> there's no one else there everyone else there is just extra in makeup and Worf's there which is funny it's unclear why Worf is back at his old job because at the end of Deep Space Nine he becomes the Federation ambassador at Kronos so he goes off to be an ambassador but in this film he's just back at his old job no questions asked no, <laughs> never explained but again Worf is just in these films to be laughed at so he starts off the film being hung over and that's a bit and then he's upset that he has to disrobe for the <laughs> the Beta Z's portion of the ceremony <laughs> well some people are like that I don't mean about being annoyed about disrobing but I mean they kind of go off to do other things and then wind up back at an old job that will take them back in maybe it was just like that Yeah, he just sort of rocks up and they're like oh yeah in you come we've still got a seat for you yeah but they didn't explain it he was just there no explanation (laughs) (laughs) the thing with deep space nine for Worf, it was great because they fleshed him out so much more than he ever was in next generation where largely he existed to just fire phasers and get thrown across the bridge by whatever alien beamed aboard to show how strong they were He's a Klingon, he's strong, look how strong this alien is by throwing him across the bridge. And then he had his odd episodes and they, they gave him depth here and there, but when they put him in Deep Space Nine, they really folded him into some really interesting and complicated plots and they developed him in different ways. So by the end of that show, when he moves off to be the ambassador, that's a great step forward for him. That's him moving on. But then you put him in Nemesis and he's just kind of there. It would have just been fine if he's just a guest at the wedding and then he just hangs about on the Enterprise after because they're giving him a lift. <laughs> just drop me off. Yeah. And then he gets caught up in the situation because they get called off because they're Starfleet and that's what happens. Riker misses wedding 2.0 because of a mission comes up. It does seem strange to bring him back. Like you say, you could have just referenced it. He could have been a guest. That could have been it. It's not as if he does anything. <laughs> particularly yeah. beyond that so why why was he there and <laughs> if people are that desperate to see him why put him in and then not have him do anything yeah he's there to be laughed at as i said he does have a couple of funny moments though the romulan ale should be illegal it <laughs> is and when data starts singing he, he puts his head in his hands and says irving berlin which is a bit of a callback to insurrection where he didn't know who the composers were so he's been doing his homework he's done some homework yeah since then he's learned things He doesn't think they're crew members anymore. Well, there you go. Character growth. There you go. Yeah. But after that point, he's just there to fire phasers. That's all he does. And he joins the bizarre 
action sequence at the end where Riker kind of gets a mirror as well in the Viceroy is his nemesis, so to speak. <laughs> yes, bit of air duct combat. Yeah, it's such a weird thing. I, even Jonathan Frakes says all this scene proves is that we're too old to be action heroes. <laughs> Which for Ron Perlman isn't true because he hadn't done Hellboy yet. It's funny how even under all that makeup and prosthetics and stuff, you can still tell it's Ron Perlman. Yeah. His face just shines through. It does, no matter what he's supposed to be. But yes. Yeah. He's underused in this film. Did he ever get huge or is he just kind of a faithful supporting player? In movies, definitely kind of second fiddle supporting character. I suppose he was on TV. He was in Sons of Anarchy for quite a long time as one of the main characters. But that was way after this. Yeah. Different sort of thing. And there was Hand of God or something like that on Amazon Prime. He was the lead in that. I saw one episode of it. But yeah, I don't think he was huge. Alien Resurrection wasn't far off this time. Yes. How could we forget? <laughs> I guess he's a faithful backbencher by this point. So he's in it and that's fine. But yeah, given Riker that nemesis of his own, it's kind of shoehorned in. I mean, I guess you helped rape my wife. So therefore, going to get some revenge, which is not the Starfleet way, by the way. <laughs> Does he even know that that guy was responsible for it? No, I don't think it's a revenge thing. Although there is that knowing glance, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Where Ron looks at Riker and Riker's like, I'm coming after you. The thing is, if you have a boarding party that consists of remans where you've already established that they don't like light, just turn the lights up, incapacitated instantly. (laughs) Yeah, it should just be standard protocol. Just max out the lights on that deck, then they're useless. There's also a big nitpick about that sequence. They invade deck 29... The Enterprise doesn't have 29 decks, so that's a thing. Depending what bit of dialogue you listen to, because it contradicts itself in First Contact, where Picard says it has 24 decks, and in a different scene, someone else says that the board control decks 26 up to 11. So it has either 24 or 26 or 29 decks, depending where you listen to. (laughs) But not only that, there's a bottomless chasm at the bottom of the lowest Mm -hmm. deck, so... (laughs) How big is Need to something to throw people into after a bit of fisticuffs. Can't wait till the repair team find the crushed corpse of this Reman just at the bottom of the ship. <laughs> I don't know. He could be resurrected in years to come. We all saw it happen to Palpatine. <laughs> Somehow the Viceroy survived. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one cared. <laughs> the Perlman speaks. <laughs> I guess with more time they could have done more with the relationship between the viceroy and shinzon this guy took pity on me for some reason yeah i don't think it was developed really to me he just seemed like a sort of crony yeah he was involved in in the mind reading the projection type stuff but again just underdeveloped i think it's weird because i don't know what the relationship is because you would think that shinzon would be the subservient one Mm -hmm. because he was the one taken under the wing by the viceroy but then he's in charge Yeah, he's the one giving all the orders. I wonder how that happened. I'm sure there's a prequel novel that I'll never read that (laughs) gives you Shinzon's backstory. In fact, I'm definitely sure that exists. I'm sure they've filled it in because they talk about building the scimitar at a secret base. You're essentially this ragtag group of rebels. How have you built this ship? I'm sure I read somewhere that, again, nothing with Star Trek outside of what's on screen is considered canon. I think that's slightly different now with the tie-in novels to Picard and the tie-in comics and so on are considered canon. It's like Star Wars. I suppose, until otherwise contradicted on screen. When Mm. something happens on screen, that then becomes canon. I'm sure that was happening in Star Wars at the time, actually, because there was stuff that the prequels was contradicting in established expanded universe canon, wasn't there? Yeah, and I think that there's just so much of that that they probably did just think, okay, at a certain point, we have to 
disregard it or not even pay any regard to it, which I gather is distressing. If you've watched the original trilogy and then dived into the expanded universe and then George Lucas kind of resurrects it and tramples over bits of it. (laughs) If you're a fan of that, sorry. Oops. Yeah, but in Star Trek, it was always, if it's not on screen, it's not canon. So you just read the novels and stuff. It's a bit of a lark. It's a bit of a side thing. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't have to be anything but then you end up reading stories in the novels that are better than what they put on screen you're like i wish this was canon it's not not. stuff like they did a lot with kirk's backstory in novels there was like a cadet kirk series that i read some of that details him and spock and mccoy at starfleet academy and that kind of stuff there's nothing in the original series that actually contradicts this because they don't go into that much detail but it's fine it's still not canon maybe at some point they'll do a starfleet academy series there's similar stuff with next gen as well there's some prequel novels or prequel short novellas that are Starfleet Academy days and there's even stories set during the run of the show as well there's different ones and there's comics and there's everything all that sort of stuff so yeah I do remember hearing about a Shinzon prequel one and it was more that he stole the scimitar rather than actually built it the Romulans were building it which makes more sense right he just kind of hijacks something that's already underway yeah the Romulans are building this big black death ship with a weapon of mass destruction on it which yeah seems like something they would do yeah that takes seven minutes to deploy yeah which if you have a perfect cloak then it takes as long as it takes it doesn't matter (laughs) it looks good as well i suppose that's a bit of a shame if you're cloaked and then you've got this nice uh, wings spreading on it no one's ever going to see it i do like the scimitar though it's a nice looking ship very ominous and menacing Mm -hmm. and it's light years ahead of the enterprise in terms of firepower during the space battle the enterprise just gets pounded it never gets to a point where they're actually gaining any ground yeah and they do a good job of blowing out the section where the view screen was so you get this almost perfect replacement where you can now just see oh they've blasted us a new window (laughs) and then in star trek 2009 the view screen and window are combined there's both and they do that in discovery now as well it seems Mm. to be a thing where it's gonna be a window now does it make sense doesn't matter I suppose you could watch it and think that you're looking out a window anyway through everything before they combined. What I wondered is when you're taking a video call on it, what are you looking at? Is it like on a Zoom call where as long as you're looking directly at the screen, it looks like you're talking back to the person? Because sometimes you might stand up out of your chair or you might walk towards it or do some sort of dramatic gesture, but it always has to be captured on the screen or on the camera (laughs) that is broadcasting to the other person. That was the sort of thing I found myself wondering about. The camera must be just sitting at the top of the view screen. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure you don't have any like filters on or anything like that. It's more something I wondered about in recent years, I guess. They need to do a bit with security anyway, but they need to do a bit with privacy settings because there's consoles that you can see yeah. from the screen, so they might just have stuff displayed on them that you don't want the potential enemy to know. Yeah, and don't want any data breaches. Yeah. <laughs> you should have blurred background on. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they could do that. They... Do things like that in Discovery now, and they also have like holographic communication where they display a holographic avatar of someone, just like Shinzon did in this, actually, uh-huh. where it displays it in the room that you're in and so on. And they always have to walk through a column or a table or something. Yeah, just you to always have it. to, or it flickers when they're talking, just to right. remind you that they're not really there. Yeah. That always has to happen, or the voice is distorted in the case of Shinzon as well. Which means, presumably, that say you've got a holographic doctor on your ship, did he ever flicker? He always seemed like he was right there. Yeah, I don't think they could really afford to just spend the effects budget every episode just having him flicker. He was pretty solid, although he could change himself to be able to walk through stuff. Right, okay. So that's more to do with the settings on him than if you're projecting 
a hologram into somebody else's ship. You just have to accept that there's going to be some loss of fidelity and that That's you're going to flicker yeah. a little bit. Sorry, you've maybe turned the quality down a little bit on this. I might be a wee bit pixelated. Especially over Wi-Fi. You really need a <laughs> wired connection before you start displaying <laughs> yourself in people's living rooms or whatever. <laughs> We're going through a rift, so the Wi-Fi is a bit spotty. <laughs> that is one thing that really annoyed me, where Data suddenly realises, we're going through the rift and it's cut off all long-range communications. Data, you're an Android. You can do billions of calculations per second and this didn't occur to you. We probably should not go through the rift because that's probably where they're going to attack us. <laughs> but isn't that just part of his aspiration to be more human? Nah. Be forgetful. Only think about one thing at a time. <laughs> I'm going to be less competent. That's yeah. how I'm going to become more human. <laughs> it's also all those ships that they were going to meet, however many of them it was. At no point did any of them think, the Enterprise is a bit late. Maybe we should go check it out. Trace their course and see what happens. Yeah, they'll be fine. They'll be fine. Although I suppose it's possible that they couldn't. They were meeting them outside of Romulan space, so therefore the other Federation ships couldn't enter. They weren't authorised to. They were just sort of tiptoeing on the edge thinking yeah, just we can go in there and help them but we can't really it's an act of war there's already some war going on so <laughs> how can we really make it worse <laughs> we'll have the budget for one ship we'll bring in a couple of romulan ships and have them taken care of pretty quickly mm-hmm. with the most obvious possible maneuver that you can ever think of it's so obvious what shinzon's doing the romulans are so stupid hit the brakes drop the cloak hit the brakes and shoot them. It's so obviously a trap. Yeah, the manoeuvres and, I don't know what you would call it, spacemanship. <laughs> they weren't excelling particularly there in that battle. No, well, Star Trek battles around that time were always a bit like that. There's some space battles that are better than others, but around that time, Voyager had not long finished. And what a lot of the battles in that show were, were just people reading out what percentage the shields are at console blows up or sparks fly from the ceiling then someone will tell you shields are at 38% and that's how you know how well the battle's going (laughs) yeah it was a bit like that in this and then they end up just nose to nose I was thinking in the vast expanses of space that they have to fly around in they just end up pointed right at each other and then it's back onto the zoom calls yeah well you think of the Mass Effect approach where they want you to do a bit more realistic space combat until the third game is supposed but in mass effect is you should never be anywhere near another ship unless you're planning to dock with them because mm-hmm. there's a lot of space there and you don't need to be that close but yeah it's always been a thing in star trek they're always nose to nose as well even though it's three-dimensional mm-hmm. space you never see a ship just approaching from a weird angle <laughs> they're always right in front yes and targeting things on 2d screens as well i can see where this is going now tracking it tracking it tracking it moving down the x-axis along the y-axis fire yeah well i've always wondered about that how, how do you put borders in space <laughs> yes your brain begins to melt with the dimensions of it all surely you have to just draw a big circle around say romulan space and this is romulan space in this circle Mm-hmm. Or in this sphere. In this sphere. As opposed to, here's this line. If you cross this line, there'll be trouble. But if you put so many spheres together, there's always going to be little bits in between that don't match up. A weird territorial Venn diagram. <laughs> there's this bit where they encroach. But yeah, it's best not to think about it. It's just one of those things. It's the conceit of the franchise, isn't it? That's what podcasts are for, for people to have these discussions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a bit about data. Because there's a big film for him as well. He gets essentially the same connection as Picard does. He finds a underdeveloped version of himself in a way. It's the prototype. Again, how Shinzon got a hold of this, I have no idea. 
he just did. It'll be in that prequel book that I'm not going to read. It'll just explain where he found this android. It's called B4, which is kind of cute. He's, he's always got cutesy nicknames for his stuff. There's Data, there's Lore, and there's B4 now. I think it would have made more sense if he'd managed to get a hold of Lore, because Lore appears in a season seven episode, season six slash seven two-parter episodes of Next Gen and he's dealt with there and he's damaged. So that could have explained why he was a bit simpler, so to speak, which would have carried more weight because there would have been that pre-existing connection between Data and Lore, whereas B4 is just this weird innocent child that caught up in all of this and he gets weirdly condemned as well where Data's like, you're dangerous, I'm going to switch you off forever. And they're analysing him when they bring him back and asking Jordy, why has he got this extra USB port back here? Nobody can work out that that's the spying port. <laughs> yeah, but it's also, this happens after Data's decided, I'm going to download all my memory files into his brain. It's like, oh, what's this? It's a redundant memory port It's because his brain can't handle all the memory that you're giving him, so it's funneling off. Here, what are you doing? Why are you making this decision? It's also this giving him all the memories and Data's motivation is to help B4 become a more complete individual. But again, it's the duality, isn't it? The individual more like you, but he wouldn't be me. It's, he has all your memories, he kind of would. And in fact, that's what they were setting up at the end, that he would become you. So your messaging doesn't quite work there. And there is the prequel comic to the 2009 Star Trek movie has Data as captain of the Enterprise restored from before so it happens in non-canon comic thing so they use him to create a backup almost essentially yeah it's a bit like what spock did when he put his soul into mccoy i did get that feeling at the end where you're supposed to be emotionally affected by data's sacrifice but of course we've got this backup copy or the potential to reboot him or resurrect him from before so is it undercut immediately or is he enough of a different individual we know from everything that's been discussed that makes him different from data that you'll never be able to have exactly the same data we knew and loved i think based on this film they want you to think at the end oh don't worry data will come back eventually And then when you get to Picard season one, the answer to that question in the first episode, B4 didn't amount to anything. We just leave him dismantled in this drawer. <laughs> he showed flashes. He started singing, but it just wasn't the same. He just wasn't the same. He was off key. Just couldn't listen to it anymore. So we just dismantled him, put him in a drawer, get rid of him. Actually, it's, I think it's been enough time since the B4 stuff happened, by the time Data sacrifices himself, you sort of forget that that memory download happened because it's one scene early on and then the whole point is B4 will never be Data up until that point because it's just, you're dangerous, I'm going to switch you off. And then you forget he's a thing, or at least you can forget he's a thing. So when Data sacrifices himself, there is a finality to it. I think Data's death really works in this film, actually. I think they do it very, very well, especially the subdued reaction everybody has after it happens you have the explosion and then troy notices that picard's standing behind her and picard can barely compose himself that whole just open the doors i don't want to deal with this i think it's very effective i think it works really well yeah it's quite affecting and i suppose you could pick nits about surely they would know that picard had been back i don't know maybe there's an explanation for why nobody knows that he's right there just never noticed they weren't looking (laughs) if you want to have that kind of emotional scene they're all watching as he sacrifices himself blows up and it's as subdued as you would expect it to be for a a loved member of the crew that they've all lost yeah it does work and i like the scene in the ready room afterwards i think it's the ready room they're in a room anyway they're drinking wine and Riker talks about when i first met data he was humming a tune on the holodeck and he couldn't quite get it right pop goes the weasel by the way was the song that he was trying to do but he couldn't get the pop 
part. He was whistling it and he couldn't get it right. It's an encounter at Farpoint. So a nice little callback there. Shame on Riker for forgetting, but it was like 15 years prior and he hasn't seen Encounter Farpoint as much as I have. Maybe it would have been criticised as fan service or whatever. Maybe even back then it wasn't as much of an issue as it is now. But I think knowing that this was going to be the last hurrah, their last ride together, they could have sprinkled in a bit more of that. Maybe there's stuff in there that I missed because I'm not as well versed. But don't you think as the final Next Generation film, they could have given it a bit more of a send-off. Yeah, and there's a lot of scenes that are cut. Patrick Stewart often talks about how we'd like to have an actor's cut of the film because there's a lot of, exactly what you're talking about there, a lot of moments between characters that are cut. Not all of them, in fact, almost none of them, make it onto the DVD and Blu-ray. There's a couple of scenes that are quite good. There's one where Picard talks to Crusher when she's away. And she says to him, yeah, you should come for dinner sometime or whatever and see what I'm up to. And he's like, yeah, sure, I'll do that sometime. I'll give you a call. And there's another one where Riker's going off and Picard's new first officer shows up and he's played by Stephen Culp. And he's just this relatively young guy and Riker takes a rise out of him, which is quite funny. He said, Picard doesn't stand on ceremony. He's not a by the book officer. He prefers it if you call him Jean-Luc. And then he does. <laughs> and then Picard just looks at him and it's like, Captain Riker was pulling my leg, wasn't he? Yep. It was. <laughs> There's another scene where Worf and Geordi are going through Data's quarters and Data's cat takes a liking to Worf and Geordi's laughs at him and says, it's yours now. That's it. Because the cat's in one scene. It goes up to B4. Oh, yes. Yes, I remember. I presume it's still Spot, which is the name of Data's cat in the next generation, where he and she change genders depending on what episode you were watching. And species of cat as well. There was different ones. I just presume that Data would just kept killing his cats and getting new ones. <laughs> Spot Mark 7. Yeah, he just gets trapped under rubble or something like that when the ship gets attacked. They're always in dangerous situations, so the cats keep getting killed. Keep getting left on alien planets or something. I don't know. Well, if you're a Starfleet cat, these things are bound to happen. It'd be quite an old cat by the time of Nemesis, though, because it's 15 years since the show started. Yeah, not a bad run. It's different cats, it must be, because there are literally different cats on the show. <laughs> they just never explain where Data gets all his cats from and why he keeps having different ones. Cat farm, down on Deck 29. <laughs> that's it, Deck 29. That's why they don't speak of it. It's where they clone all the cats. But yeah, as an exit for Data, it was very, very good. I think it was one of those things that Brent Spiner wanted to do because I can't keep playing this character because I'm aging. Mm-hmm. And now they just de-age him like they did in Picard. You've seen the first episode of Picard, yeah? Yes. You might remember in that episode they do some direct callbacks to Nemesis with the song, for example, the Blue Skies song. That opens the first episode and Picard's obviously haunted by Data's sacrifice in the show Picard. It probably would have meant a lot more to me if I'd watched this a lot sooner. <laughs> Or a lot closer to watching Picard, but it was lost on me, I'm afraid. Although, looking back, or do you not remember the Picard episode well enough? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> but they do pick it up. It's this profound loss on Picard's side. It's something that deeply affects him. He has nightmares about it, and then for some reason there's an android that's technically Data's daughter somehow that shows up, and he feels compelled to do right by his old friend. And Data then appears in the final episode of the first season of Picard. He's been backed up to a hard drive somehow, essentially. And he's there somehow. Brent Spiner obviously plays the character again. They de-age him to make him look like he did an ageless android. They they try and make him look like that. But yeah, you can see Brent Spiner obviously age over the 15 years in his time in the role. And you can't hold that against him. He is human, even though he's not playing (laughs) me a human. 
I know, what is he doing? Aging. How dare he? How dare he age? You do get a good display of his acting skills where he plays B4, I think, the way that he does it. His comic timing's very good, especially his B4. It's the, why does the tall man have a furry face? And all that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's got to be even more innocent than he was at the very beginning when he first appears before he's developed any human characteristics. This is a stage before that even. Yeah, he's a blank slate, effectively. And he's looking around with that weird grin on his face and things like that. And I do think it's quite a sad moment, actually, when B4's getting deactivated. He just seems very like somber, even though he's not emotionally driven. Well, I guess you can imprint emotions onto him because you have to. And something weirdly not mentioned in this film is Data's emotion chip, which comes up in the other films. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just not mentioned. He's not displaying emotion either. Yeah, I suppose it's to do with B4's innocence. You do feel bad for him, even though he is just a pretty nascent android, but I suppose he doesn't really understand what's going on, and then he gets deactivated or switched off or whatever. Felt for the guy. Yeah. I did find it weird that they didn't reference Data's emotion chip in any way, because it's such a big thing in the films that he's working through how to learn to be emotional. Mm -hmm. But in this, he's back to factory reset, almost emotionless Data in the Next Generation era stuff he's not displaying emotion at all you could argue he kind of is do you think it appeared in previous drafts and was just kind of edited out i remember in the novelization there's a line about how it got destroyed it fried itself in his brain or something like that and it doesn't work anymore now, i'm sure there's a line in the novelization but again it doesn't matter the novelization is always based on an earlier version of the script anyway hmm. i've read all the star trek novelizations of the first 10 films anyway there's some weird stuff in there for example in first contact there's a bit where the phaser getting knocked out of picard's hand and lily picks it up and then picard gets it back and he says maximum setting if you'd fired this you would have vaporized me in the book he says oh setting two or whatever if you'd shot me i'd have a nasty rash <laughs> i think the filmed version is better <laughs> set phasers to rash i want to mildly annoy this person <laughs> <laughs> It's good to know that they've got that just for pranking people. Just that versatility (laughs) in your weapon. If you just want to make someone itch, just fire at this thing. I don't remember any other egregious changes in Nemesis as a novelization. That's the only one I can remember is where they mention the emotion chip. It's just not brought up here, which is again, the Stuart Baird thing, the Paramount not caring thing. They're just picking and choosing what stuff to abandon that's actually important to people. Certainly important to me as a fan, because I'm just kind of wondering. Data doesn't seem to feel anything in this film, which is weird, because it's such a prominent fixture in all of the Next Generation films, in one way or another. Yes, it does seem like a strange omission. Yeah, but it is what it is. And it doesn't downplay his sacrifice, I think. You get to see his jumping through space, which is pretty cool. Yeah, goes for a bit of a spacewalk. That felt familiar. It felt like I'd seen something like that somewhere else. I mean, it's probably in in multiple movies where you have to jump between ships, but do they gloss over how he gets in? Because he grabs onto the other ship and then you see him sort of scrabbling around on the outside for a bit. Do you actually see him get in? I might have missed that. He finds a hatch. Okay. He just happens upon a hatch. That's not a security flaw. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering, yeah, how easily breached a starship is if you're just kind of floating around on the outside of it. Just knock on the door or ring the doorbell, wait for someone to come along. Again, another nitpick is the bit where the transporters are down. You're talking every transporter on the ship. Every shuttle has its own transporter. They're all down, apparently. They're all down. They're all down. Don't worry about it. They're all down. Then you can't have data just leaping through space they could have used the collision actually as a way for picard to get on board the transporters are out we're gonna have to crash into this thing so that we can just walk on (laughs) (laughs) just step over yeah yeah 
That would have worked. That was a cool sequence. That's one of the practical effects they used. They just crashed a model of the saucer into a model of part of the scimitar. Yeah, I saw that in the trivia. Did it upside down so that all the debris falls. Yeah, I thought that looked pretty good, the way that it looked like it was floating off into space. Yeah. The visuals in this film, you can't fault them, I don't think. Although it's weird that the Enterprise has an exhaust when it goes to warp. I didn't notice that, but I'll have to take your word for it. (laughs) If that's a a nitpick. Just go back and watch one of the couple of scenes where it goes to warp, and you'll see there's a bit of discharge. I did think that very early on in the film, is it on Romulus? I thought it looked quite like the effect from the Star Wars prequels, just the planet. It's not a criticism, because obviously that's what special effects were at the time, or what uh, computer-generated scenery, backdrops, all that kind of stuff were at the time. It was interesting kind of comparing it to films of its era as well, and I thought it stood up to those. Yeah, well, ILM didn't do this film because they were doing Star Wars, so they can hire ILM because they were busy. Fully booked. The last time ILM did effects for Star Trek was First Contact. They did the effects there. That's why you have the Millennium Falcon very small in the background somewhere. Insurrection, they didn't do the effects there either, but Nemesis, I don't know what effects house, I don't know effects houses, I just know it wasn't ILM, but they did a good job, the Enterprise looks great. You can obviously tell it's CGI, but it's pretty good CGI. Yeah, it looked fine, no complaints. Yeah, and the June buggy scene was fully practical, more or less, apart from the jump into the shuttle, I guess. And there's a shot just as they're coming out as well. It looked a bit uncanny with the three of them sitting in there, but then, yeah, the rest of it all held up. Yeah, there's behind-the-scenes footage of they've got the camera rig and they're doing that, you know, that turn where the two wheels go up? Yeah. It kept falling over when they tried to do that. <laughs> That'll be why. And you see Worf's head bobbing around the background when they're driving, which is quite funny. One thing about Worf in this film is he's a suck shot. He, he can't hit anything. That just goes to the theory that he's only in there for comic relief. I mean, he eventually hits stuff, but he, he doesn't seem as competent as he should be. I did like his line when they found the arm and Data says it appears to be a robotic arm. And he was very astute. Worf is one of my favourite characters, and he has been in more Star Trek than anyone, Michael Dorn. He was in seven seasons of Next Generation, he was in four of Deep Space Nine, he'd been in every film since Star Trek VI as well. He has a brief cameo in Star Trek VI as Worf's grandfather, Hmm. and he's obviously in all the the Next Gen films, so he's logged more Star Trek hours than any other actor. He's prolific. He is. Is it his longevity that is one of your favourite things about him, or... I presume there's got to be more about the character that you like. I think his voice is great. Michael Dorn's got a great voice. You've probably heard him do voices in video games and things. He voices a Krogan in Mass Effect 2, for example. Mm. He has been quite a prominent voice actor. He turns up in loads of things. So his voice is great. And I think the way they, particularly in Deep Space Nine, the way they develop him is great. He's just a great character. And Michael Dorn's very good at it as well. So I do think he's a great character. Michael Dorn keeps floating the idea of, maybe we should do a Captain Worf series. I'll take the lead on this. And I'm like, yeah, do it. Give me a Captain Worf series. I'd watch it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm sure people would be up for that. There'd be a, a very small subset of the fandom that would watch it. Oh, I don't know. He's surely got to be popular. Yeah, he'd be popular among Star Trek fans. I mean, doing a series with Picard, you can probably get casual Star Trek viewers into it because Picard is so synonymous. Worf might be a tough sell as a property, but they're making so much Star Trek, they're going to run out of ideas eventually. Yeah, Captain Worf, it's time. <laughs> get Michael Dorn back in the makeup, glue the turtle on his head again so they can get him back in the mix. If he's been in it so much, how many hours and hours of makeup must he have gone through? Yeah, he's logged more hours of makeup than anyone else, that's for sure. Yeah. And he wants to do more of it. It's crazy. He wants to do more, yeah. He's coming back from more. He's a glutton for that. Maybe the money's running out. <laughs> He's a pilot, actually. He flies a plane and he calls his plane his starship. He was on a podcast I was listening to. Not this one, unfortunately. I'd love to interview Michael Dorn. 
If you're listening, Michael Dorn, I will have you on any time. Absolutely. He was apparently coming in for a landing somewhere and the air traffic controller was like, are you Worf? He's like, yep. (laughs) (laughs) That must be pretty cool to hear that over the radio. Yeah. Imagine you're just, you're having a boring day at work, you're landing some planes, then Worf's voice comes on. (laughs) You're being hailed. (laughs) Great. But yeah, Worf doesn't do much here. Data does plenty. I think it is kind of by the numbers because it is supposed to set up that connection between him and Picard. They're dealing with the same thing. So he can give Picard advice on what it means to be human, weirdly. (laughs) So it flips the script in a way on what Picard used to offer data in terms of that guidance towards being human. And then Picard, in his moment of doubt, gets that played back to him from data. So that's a nice little full circle moment. The student has become the master, kind of, but not quite. Yeah, I suppose it's quite an interesting approach to it, this kind of late in the run. I guess you've always got to be looking for new angles. Yeah. Again, there's not time to do much with it, which is a shame. Mm -hmm. And in Picard, the show... Picard gets to complete the human experience for Data by allowing him to finally die, like properly die. I'm going to turn off this hard drive that you're on. Spoilers for the final episode of season one of Picard. (laughs) If you haven't seen it by now, I'm guessing you don't really care. (laughs) There's too much. There's just too much media. God, yeah. But that's really it in terms of characterization, isn't it? There's not a great deal else. Like I said, the other characters, they're just kind of there. You do have that moment between Picard and Crusher where they discuss how Picard was when he was younger. Yeah, I think a lot of that's kind of incidental. I mean, I suppose it's nice to sprinkle it in there, but you're right, the majority of it is what we've been discussing so far. Yeah. Troy gets to drive the ship again and crashes it again. I don't know if you picked up on that. The last time she was at the helm was in Generations and she crashed the ship. It wasn't her fault, but she did. I didn't make the connection, but it's interesting that you should point out <laughs> whenever she's allowed the controls goes south. And texting was in vogue in 2002, so Picard does some texting. Yes, notice text message. He uses a bit of text speak as well, although he uses the full words until the word command. I don't have time to type this whole word, just CMD, <laughs> she'll understand. It was quite cool, actually. He's just noising up shins on and just texting Troy at the same time. Preparing the essentially worthless manoeuvre of crashing into the scimitar because it doesn't do anything. <laughs> Just displaying his ability to multitask. They crash the Enterprise into the scimitar, no doubt killing some crew who are unfortunate to be the front of the saucer. And then the scimitar reverses, and then that's about it. <laughs> it is a bit like a fender bender in a car park or something. <laughs> it's not the spectacular hyperspace ram or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. Can't do anything else. Might as well just ram into them and see if that yeah. works. <laughs> Which is why I think it would have made more sense for that to be how Picard gets aboard. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, it would give that a reason for happening. Yeah. What did you think of the action in general, though? Because there was a good few set pieces in here. You had the Mad Max-style chase on Clarus 3. You had the escape from the scimitar in the little fighter jet thing. The big space battle, and then the action sequence at the end with Picard on board and hitting people with his phaser rifle. And of course you had the infamous Deck 29 shootout. I think the space stuff probably works the best and seems best placed. The dune buggy chase felt very kind of earthbound to me. It doesn't feel particularly sci-fi and it looks like even if you're firing lasers or phasers or whatever everything looked quite like you might have just seen in a modern war movie or something the people with mounted guns. It may all well be perfectly in universe but that's just how i felt watching it the escape from the ship in the little fighter it was an interesting tactic i thought taking to the hallways it felt a bit like a a sort of 
retro video game or something <laughs> they just kept coming across guys that either dive out of the way or they just have to hit be quite good if one got stuck and they had to use the windscreen wipers to sort of <laughs> wipe them off the, the window and then they just kind of blast their way out eventually so it was what it was i don't think it was particularly thrilling but it was interesting to see those characters kind of getting up to that it's luckily the hallways on the the scimitar are big enough to fly a fighter through yeah and then you've got the big stateroom with the giant window Yes, which they could just smash through. I had no idea if they knew where they were going, but it seemed like they did because they were taking turns and things like that or going around bends. looked like they'd studied a map. Data was giving him directions. He's like, left. You just don't hear him. That must have been it. Yes, and then smash through the window. (laughs) (laughs) As I say, an interesting tactic, but it worked out. Although I did quite like more of the banter than the scene before that where they're running through and the running gun stuff. Again, nobody can hit anything. Picard with dual-wielding weapons to take down the Remans while Data's trying to open a door. It's just the banter between them. That the Reman language is this and this and this. And Picard's like, well, I find that fascinating. Just open the bloody door so we can get out of here. I like that. I thought that worked really well. Yeah, and I quite liked how he had to have several goals at decrypting it. And it looked quite impressed with himself when he did manage. Yeah, his little grin. Yeah. And I liked his little grin before he did the Vulcan neck pinch as well on the Riemann guard. Just a little wink. It's me. We did it. And then Shinzon just kills the guy. There's a zero tolerance policy to incompetence on Shinzon's yes. ship. Like, you failed. Yes. Dead. Shoot him. Even though it was probably my fault because I put the identical android <laughs> in an easy way to find out. The hack was detected. Yeah, so those were the action sequences. The June buggy one, it's not that exciting. Again, the problem I have is every time Worf shoots, he misses other than a couple of times. And they don't seem that bothered about breaching the Prime Directive because those Mad Max aliens haven't seen aliens before. So they're not bothered. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we're just down here to mess some stuff up. <laughs> We're here to pick up these parts of an android. It's a bit like in Into Darkness again, where they just leave the planet and they've made themselves known to the inhabitants. They just have a bit of a chase and then, oops, let's get out of here. Do you think it was better or worse than Kirk on a dirt bike, though? Oh. I know you took exception to that. Yeah, I didn't really like that. No, I think it had to be better than that. Mm. It's a weird sequence. It's very un-Star Trek. They've never done that before. Yeah, maybe that was why. I mean, obviously, we live on Earth and things that are shot here are shot on Earth. And by that nature, some of it's going to look like it's very familiar. California desert, of course, as usual. But it's overexposed this time to make it look a bit more alien. But beyond that, I can't really complain. If it's not very Star Trek to have a sort of motorised chase scene like that and they're trying something, fair enough. Yeah, because we'd never seen ground vehicles in Star Trek before, actually. Before this point, they never seemed to use them. They just sort of beam down to wherever they need to be. Maybe I just subconsciously, that was maybe why it felt even less trekky and it was more rounded. No pun intended. Yeah, and then the space battle, which we've already mentioned, was just reading out shield percentages. Largely. It looked great, though. It's a bit repetitive in the, we're just trying to hit this invisible enemy that is bizarrely very close by. (laughs) and can be hit yes so much space to fly into we're just gonna circle each other (laughs) just gonna circle each other just get hit by random phasers although it's not a threat in any way because the enterprise doesn't do significant damage (laughs) then the romulans show up just to extend the space battle is it the same ships that offer them help at the end yeah you sort of forget they're there don't you yeah, because I was thinking, who's this? And then I thought, oh wait, it's the guys who got shot up before <laughs> that are now saying, okay, we'll send some medical and s- some supplies to you. Yeah, they've just been sitting there watching this whole time and like, what is going on here? <laughs> this is ridiculous. Why is he flying into it? They get hailed and it's like, oh yeah, the Romulans are still there. <laughs> They're just sitting over there watching. But it makes sense that they would show up as well because there's clearly a bit of unrest. People don't like Shinzon over in the Romulan hierarchy. 
They're just like, what's going on here? This is crazy. Look at his veins. What's wrong with his face? And Donatra, I've read the novels set after this with Riker on the Titan. They're pretty good. Donatra appears in those quite prominently. So good for her, I guess. Mm-hmm. They obviously had no intention of ever continuing this in live action, which is a shame. I would have liked to see Riker on the Titan, which we've seen now, actually, in a way. He appears in Lower Decks on the Titan, so an animated version of Riker. Oh, yeah. Lower Decks is sort of a heightened reality. It's played for laughs. It's a comedy. Mm-hmm. And Lower Decks, the Riker in that show, is essentially all the dialed up ridiculous traits of Riker that you would imagine that you, you hear joked about. He likes jazz and stuff. He's always making jazz references. He's like Zach Brannigan, but competent, I think, in Lower Decks. <laughs> That's basically the best way to describe him. Fair enough. (laughs) So we've seen that since, and he does show up in the last episode of Picard commanding a ship as well. You get to see him do his captain thing, but I would like to see Riker as captain because I think that'd be interesting. But I think it's been too long now. Yeah, unfortunately, I would say the same. The time might have passed. Yeah, you would have had to do it after this immediately or almost immediately after this. But there was no appetite for it in terms of the people spending money on making Star Trek. Right. They were just weren't never going to do it. So you just have to read the novels that are non-canon. Definitely non-canon now because Picard, the show, contradicts them completely. Mm. It is what it is, I suppose. You'll never get to see Riker fulfil his destiny and be captain of his own ship. It's a damn shame. Or even if you just saw it in this film, because you just see him leave. Part of the conclusion, yeah. Yeah, because it was a while before the Titan even got designed. It got designed by a fan. It was like a fan contest. Design the Titan and we'll make a CGI model of it and put it on the front cover of one of the books. And they did that. And then the ship still looks like that in Lower Decks. Well done, whoever designed that. I think everybody just assumed it would be a Sovereign-class ship like the Enterprise at the time. Because why would he leave and be on anything else? Hmm. I'm not downgrading. (laughs) All I have to do is wait for Picard to eventually retire. It's going to happen. Dead Man's Shoes type approach to moving up the ranks. (laughs) Maybe that is what he was holding on for all maybe. these years. Riker was away at the time, but maybe if he was on the bridge at the point where Picard went aboard the scimitar to take on Shinzon, he's sitting there thinking he's not coming back from this. This is my day. This is me. I'm going to be getting this ship. <laughs> sort of reverse psychologying him into going on all those away missions, saying, you shouldn't be going on away missions. Please, please go on away missions. <laughs> I could run the place. Yeah, I want the Enterprise. It's my ship now. What did you think of Shinzon's death, where he just gets impaled by a piece of sharp wall hanging? <laughs> yes, sharp wall hanging. What was that? <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's pretty lo-fi, really, for everything that could happen to someone in the Star Trek universe, to have that piece of metal just bent towards him, and then he almost impales himself, doesn't he? Because he's kind of advancing on Picard, about to stab <laughs> yeah. him with a... Yeah, dagger. And yeah, I suppose you've seen it in plenty of other properties where someone's been run through and then they sort of pull themselves even further onto it just to show their grit, their determination that even in this moment they're willing to drive themselves further onto the blade just to get close to their nemesis. At that point, Shinzon's approach was very much scorched earth, wasn't it? There was no way that he could do the procedure that he needs in order to survive, so he's going to just try and do as much damage as he can before he dies, which is going to be pretty soon. It's like Picard said, it's not about me anymore. So what he's going to do is he's going to kill everyone on the Enterprise. He seems to die with the satisfaction of, at least I'm going to take Picard with me. Yeah. And then he never finds out that he doesn't. I guess there's a victory for him in that respect. 
I get to sort of win. In his mind, yes. Yeah, sure. Whatever helps him <laughs> sleep at night. If there'll be no more nights of sleep, he'll just die. By that point, it was all muddled. Like, there was no character anymore. He was just doing stuff. You're supposed to get the impression of the desperation of a dying man, I guess. But if you hadn't been pissing about so much, you might have had more time. Yeah, he does what he needs to do as a plot device, I suppose, at the end there. His role as the baddie is to flip out at the end, abandon his original plan, and just go after whoever he can get. Pretty much. His viceroy's dead. Nothing to live for. <laughs> His viceroy might be dead. He doesn't know. No more head massages from him. Yeah, that's it. No more mind rapes. That won't be happening anymore. Mm. That's just a weird scene. I don't think it has any function within the plot, really, other than setting up Troy getting her revenge by telepathically tracking him down. Yeah, I suppose it does set that up. And Troy and, and Riker have been married, so there's that kind of violation. But yeah, you're right. We've kind of said how the other characters are sidelined. They could have taken that further if they'd wanted to and developed it and worked that whole, as you said, Riker's got his nemesis. But it's not as if you feel like the Viceroy is a character or has developed a rivalry or anything with Riker. So yes, another half-baked element. The most bizarre thing around that is after that scene, no one's really treating it like a big deal. Picard's like, what was it? And she's like, it's a violation. <laughs> and he's like, all right, cool. That's not the best. But radiation? Yeah, let's talk about that instead. <laughs> you know when people might bring up something that's kind of uncomfortable and you're just like, I'm just not going to touch that. I have nothing to say here. Just yeah, back off. Yeah. Let's get out of here. That's Picard's approach. I'm not emotionally equipped to deal with this. <laughs> I'm just going like, to gloss over it. Can I get some time off? Because I've just been raped. Nah, I'm going to need you. It does seem like something that he should be able to, you know, as the captain, he should be able to address these sorts of things. But uh, yeah, it's interesting that he's unable to. Yeah. I don't know if you caught this in your trivia, though. The love scene. Apparently Jonathan Frakes refused to shave his back, so they digitally removed his back hair. (laughs) I did read that. I was reading that trivia before that scene happened, so I was actually looking out for this digitally shaven back. So many questions about... (laughs) How did they do that? Why did they do that? Why was he so adamant about keeping his back? I mean, maybe he's very proud of his pelt. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We could go on about that for hours. He's a groomed wookie, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Why does the tall man have a fuzzy back? <laughs> it's just such a weird thing. Okay, Jonathan, we're going to need you to be partially naked in a scene. So if you could shave your back, that'd be great. He's like, no, not doing it. But why? Why do they need him to shave his back? <laughs> so unthinkable that a Starfleet officer would have a hairy back. I don't know, maybe they consider it repulsive. Is it more obscene for someone to appear (laughs) stripped to the waist but with a hairy back (laughs) than without, I don't know. In 2002 you couldn't show a a furry-backed man. Is it a social taboo to have a hairy back? I have no idea. I don't know. I'm sure there's all sorts of weird rules in Hollywood about what they'll show, what they won't show. Yeah, but this is a man who's middle-aged. That's the thing about the Next Generation cast. There's no spring chickens on the cast by this point well they're not old they're getting on a bit and they're still doing this (laughs) digitally removed they made that the story in the original series movies the idea that some of us are getting a bit older and we might not be able to do this forever kind of thing star trek 6 for example which is a much better swan song than this is about how they're not going to be doing this for much longer which weirdly spock is also involved in even though he's comparatively speaking younger than everyone else because he lives longer Right, but he just gets kind of lumped in. Maybe it's if you are hanging around with older people, then you just become part of that <laughs> gang. You just get lumped in with them. Yeah, because 
Kirk in Star Trek 6 is in his 50s or something. He turns 50 in Wrath of Khan, so he'll be like late 50s by the time Star Trek 6 comes around. Whereas Spock is about the same. It's now canonically established that they were born roughly around about the same time. It's only canonically established in the Kelvin timeline, I suppose. But they are roughly the same age. That is well established in terms of years, but not in terms of percentage of life lived. By the time you get to Star Trek Six, Spock is not middle-aged. Right. Because Vulcans lived like 200 years. Or they can live 200 years. I'm, I'm not sure how old they're supposed to live. If you assume that Spock is the same age as Leonard Nimoy. He's entering his prime. Yeah, pretty much. He's still in his prime, even though he looks kind of old. <laughs> Very strange. It's become kind of shriveled and Yoda-like in the yeah. 200th year. <laughs> what it is, I think, is it's like Superman. He reaches a particular age doesn't go beyond that for a while. Right, okay, I believe it. That's why he looks the same in Star Trek Six and when he appears in Next Generation. Because obviously they're filmed around about the same time. Leonard Nimoy is the same age, but Spock is, he's like 80 years older. <laughs> Very strange. But in this, they're human. So in the 24th century, it's established McCoy's in Encounter at Farpoint and he's like 140 years old or something like that. So humans live way longer. So even Picard being in his 60s, 70s in this film wouldn't be that old, potentially. Riker will be in his 50s, which again, in percentage of life lived, wouldn't be the same as being 50 now, because he still has potentially another 100 years. But how do you do that when you only have actors to work with at a certain age? <laughs> a lot of de-aging. Yeah, that's basically it. Jonathan Frakes will appear de-aged in some of them. Maybe they'll just do what they did with Luke Skywalker and feed all his dialogue into a computer and get it to spit out whatever they want Riker to say. <laughs> well, yeah, there's got to be enough in the can to be able to get him to say almost anything with a deep fake. I don't want to see Uncanny Valley Riker. just don't want to see it. <laughs> or his uncanny back. Yeah, that's it. Just allow him to have a hairy back. It's fine. <laughs> One of Riker's defining traits is his hair. All right, it's his facial hair. Yes, which apparently is not obscene. <laughs> and whenever you see him shirtless in their next generation, he always has a hairy chest as well. Front, fine. Back, bad. No, no, no. Crazy. It's a weird bit of trivia. I just had to get that in there. <laughs> It beggars belief. Well, yeah. When you read something like that in the trivia, it has to be discussed. Was there anything else in the trivia that you wanted to go over? Because I didn't actually read it. I think that was probably the best nugget that I found in there. <laughs> Nothing else in the trivia that stood out to you? Nothing that we haven't already discussed, I don't think. We've had a few things from the trivia come up. Oh, good. Just me with my years of knowledge. Yes. Okay, so is there anything else about Nemesis that you want to chime in with? We've touched on the themes, revenge, obsession, abandonment, legacy. Legacy in the sense of Shinzon doesn't feel like he'll have a legacy because he's going to die soon. He doesn't know what the legacy leading up to him is as well because he doesn't know anything about his family. There's legacy from Picard in the sense of his kids, some of his crew are moving on to blaze their own trail and he's part of that. He's part of what formed that yeah i don't have much more to say on that the only other point i wanted to bring up was that i know i'd said that i'd watched this from a tom hardy retrospective point of view when shinzon was discussing his origins down the mine i was watching that part with natalie and we both kind of looked at each other and it was as if it was bane <laughs> his backstory went down there and i didn't see the light again until however much longer and this is incredible that the same actor is basically giving you the same story of his early years as two different characters and i wondered if you'd noticed that or if you had any thoughts on that at all it didn't occur to me actually but yeah it's very similar do you think you had to make an impossible jump to get out of the pit i can only assume that basically everything else about the bane backstory played out in the shinzon backstory as well. <laughs> although it wasn't bane that did that in dark knight rises it was talia wasn't it spoilers for dark knight rises yes 
But yeah, the imagery is fairly similar with the child going down there and being mistreated. It's just all there in Dark Knight Rises. Do you think he got the script from Christopher Nolan and thought, this is like in Star Trek Nemesis, that film that I won't admit to being in. <laughs> he was like, oh, I've got this nailed. I've got this nailed. I did this before. <laughs> Where's my Viceroy? Where's Ron Perlman? I need Ron Perlman to help me with this. That's an interesting thought. Never occurred to me on that one. There you go. You just have to watch it through the Tom Hardy lens. I wonder if there's any other references to anything that he does after this. Probably not. I'm trying to think of other things. He's been in Bronson. Nothing there. Inception. Nothing there either. Venom. Definitely not. Other than the fact that talking to an alien, I suppose. So yeah, next time you watch it, just focus on Hardy. See if there's anything else from his legacy that you can pick up. His performance in this was good, though. He did a really good job. I did buy him as a younger Picard. Yeah, I suppose so. As a different version, it's difficult when you've got... Quite often when somebody plays a younger version of a character that you know so well, it's not as if they're playing it against that actual character and actor. So you don't have that direct comparison, whereas you do in this. And I suppose you do have to just kind of... It's not really suspending your disbelief, but you just have to accept that he's a clone, he's had a a different life, and that you're seeing this kind of crossing of the paths. Whereas, as I say, when you see people playing a younger version, you're not looking right at the older version, the older actor who they're supposed to be. You can't look from one to the other and think, did this person grow into this person? Except in the next film that they make in Star Trek with the two Spocks. Right, They share that one scene. Well, yeah, that's a good point. But I think that in this, they did a good job, is what I'm trying to say. Because it wasn't as if you're sitting there the whole time thinking, no way, that guy is a younger version of that guy. And I think it actually works out pretty well in the next Star Trek as well. Yeah, well, he gets to put his own stamp on essentially the different character. There's just supposed to be little shades of Picard in there, which you get through, I guess, the speech pattern. They have a very similar diction, I suppose. Because part of what they're selling it on is the fact that Shinzon has the potential to be this good person that Picard is. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be some of that in there. And I do think there's some of it in there. I think there's more of Picard in this performance than Alden Ehrenreich does with Han Solo, for example. Even though he yeah. is supposed to be the same guy. Whereas this isn't the same guy. But that his performance does feel like more of an impersonation. Whereas this one, I'm glad that he didn't go for it. And there's touches, like you've said, with the intonation, that sort of thing. It definitely didn't feel like it was an impression, but it worked, I think. I'm glad that he didn't go down that I'm just going to try and imitate Patrick Stewart as closely as possible. Yeah. There's another meta Tom Hardy thing that you could do after seeing this film, actually. Have you seen This Means War? I have not. Where Tom Hardy and Chris Pine compete for the affections of Reese Witherspoon. Uh So you could look at it as a Kirk versus Picard type scenario. Yeah, I am only going to think about that film from that perspective from now on. <laughs> now you have to go and watch This Means War from that point of view just immediately after this. It's not a very good film. Probably won't watch it then. They both play government agents or something like that and then they both independently meet Reese Witherspoon and they take a shine to her and then she's trying to decide which man she wants to end up with. Is it going to be Kirk or is it going to be Picard or whatever their characters are calling in that film. <laughs> I wonder if This Means War got a slightly bigger audience because of that. I think it's probably why I went to see it, to be honest. <laughs> well, there you go, it did. <laughs> yeah. It had one extra ticket sales because of who was casting it. I don't know, I might have went to see it because Tom Hardy and Chris Pine were in it anyway. And I like Reese Witherspoon as well, so mm-hmm. maybe I would have. There's a reading of that film, so there's another bit of Tom Hardy trivia legacy thing that you can take from this. Yeah, and if we've missed anything, tweet at us, tell us if other... <laughs> analogues that you know of absolutely so do you have any last things you want to bring up about nemesis no i think that's been a good discussion i'm still adamant that i have seen this before (laughs) 
<laughs> in the last 20 years somewhere. Yeah, I just reiterate that the fact that it didn't stick with me is probably reflective of how I felt watching it this time around. It would have been before you worked in a cinema when it came out, wouldn't it? Yes. Started working in a cinema in about 2004 or five. All right, okay. I could probably pinpoint it because Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift was one of the films that was out in my first <laughs> few weeks. Okay. So I'm always taken right back there whenever I hear the soundtrack from that movie. <laughs> Sweeping up so much popcorn. <laughs> I don't think this is the best way to sign off the Next Generation crew. I know that you've got an affinity for this, so I don't want to... I definitely don't feel like I would rubbish this anyway, but I was underwhelmed by it. I didn't think it was particularly cinematic in scope. As we've dived into it and delved through it and talked about lots of different things, I think there's obviously a lot to talk about here and there's a lot of interesting things to bring up, even if it sometimes means talking about Jonathan Frakes back here. <laughs> I'm not sad that I watched this because it gave me the opportunity to have this discussion. So yeah. I'm glad it might be 20 years again before I <laughs> watch it again. But by then I'll have had so many more Tom Hardy experiences to come back and then compare to this. You'll have watched This Means War and you'll be like, this has enriched my life. Yeah, exactly. Rubbish it all you want. A lot of people do. <laughs> A lot of people really seem to hate this film. Like I said, I think in terms of writing quality, it is actually about the same as the 2009 film. I think if you were to put them side by side from a page by page analysis, they're about the same. It's just the 2009 movie does it better. It's produced better. I suppose it's got a younger, zippier cast, whereas this is people that are a bit past their prime in terms of their ability to lead an action film. Well, I know we've had a lot of Jerry action films in the time since. The Takens of the World, the John Wicks, whatever. Keanu Reeves is ageless. He'll be kicking ass long after we're gone, I think. We've had a number of those, the old guys are going to kick ass again type films. So maybe if it had come out in amongst them, it's, yeah, we've seen Patrick Stewart with a machine gun. It's a phaser rifle, but it's a machine gun. We're seeing Patrick Stewart just kicking ass. I mean, if you can get Helen Mirren in a Fast and Furious movie doing <laughs> action stuff, you can do anything, right? Isaac keeps saying that they should put Patrick Stewart in a Fast and Furious movie now and see what he does. <laughs> Him and Ian McKellen could play this criminal duo that Rob Banks or something like that. They could do that. I'd love that, actually. That'd be amazing. They could have got Ian McKellen to play Shins on. That'd be great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this was around about the time of X-Men as well. Mm Mm-hmm. It was all happening. X-Men was slightly before this. I'm digressing once again. But I do like this film. At the end of the day, it's still a film that features Captain Picard and Data and Riker. And they aren't badly written in the sense that they're not unrecognisable from the versions of them that I know. Picard as a sort of bloodthirsty action hero is a bit off base. But again, even then he has those quiet moments of contemplation. I like that scene where he's in the middle of the Romulan Senate, where apparently there's a dining room just off the big Senate floor, or they're just maybe repurposing a table, where he stands there and says, a Starfleet captain standing in the middle of the Romulan Senate, that's got to be a good thing, and stuff like that. Yeah, there's the Picard from the TV show. I want to see this guy, and unfortunately in the Picard TV show, you don't really see that guy either. The TNG movies are probably the start of Patrick Stewart getting to shape what he wanted Picard to be, rather than what fans like about the character. And I don't mean to capitulate to fans, because don't do that. That's why we have Rise of Skywalker. Don't listen to us fans, just don't, because as an entity, especially the outspoken minority, they do not know what they're talking about. They do not know what they want. And no matter what you give them, they will give you crap for it. So just don't capitulate. But you can see Patrick Stewart taking the reins of the character and shaping him into what he wants to be. And that's definitely evident in the first season of Picard. And I don't necessarily think that Patrick Stewart has the right idea about what Picard is. 
weirdly, even though we played them for so long. And once we make our way through all of the Star Trek movies, we'll start watching episodes. This is 10 years of podcasting I'm planning here. There'll be episodes of Next Generation, or even if you just catch one on TV or what have you, you'll see a very different version of Picard. He doesn't go on away missions. He solves his problems with words and so on. And not that he doesn't have his action beats, but he does shy away from that quite often because that's just not the kind of guy he's supposed to be. He's a diplomat. He's an explorer. He's someone that uses his intelligence and measured approach to solve a problem. He's not Kirk. He doesn't fight in the sand. That was the whole point of his character. That's why you've got Riker. Riker can be Kirk. That was the idea at the beginning. We can send Riker down to plants to fight people in dirt. (laughs) That's what they did. So I do still like this movie. I do recognise its problems and I can have a bit of a laugh at it. And it's been out for long enough that the problems sort of erode away as well. I'm not going to say that about In the Dark and I still hate that movie. But (laughs) with this, the problems never bothered me to the point where I just found it unwatchable. And it's a good time. It's not very long. It moves along at a decent clip. It's fine. <laughs> what glowing praise. I know. As a cameo from Janeway, which is funny. We didn't talk about that. The cameo from Admiral Janeway. Yeah, that happened. It was nice to see it all tying together. My headcanon about the fact that Janeway's an admiral is she's too much trouble if she's a captain. So, you know, in any workplace, they sometimes promote people to the point where they can do as little damage as possible. They'll never get out of this job, but they can't do much damage here. We'll just leave them here. And Picard's been a captain for so long, but Janeway just gets lost for seven years and then just becomes an admiral. <laughs> it's an interesting theory. It's one theory. Of course, the real reason that Picard isn't a captain is because he heeds Kirk's advice in Generations, as we talked about a few years ago. Mm. The don't let them promote you speech that he gives. Be a captain as long as you can, till you're too old. Then be an admiral. And weird stuff will happen in this weird TV show that you're going to be on. <laughs> but no, it's good. I think it, it moves along at a decent clip and stuff. And I think it's enjoyable. There are aspects of it that are fun. Looks good. It does look good. Even though the space battle's kind of boring, it does look good. What more can you ask? Good looking, boring. I remember seeing it in the cinema and being riveted by the space battle because at that point we'd only seen the Enterprise E. This was the third time we were seeing it, so we'd never really seen it in a like, prolonged combat scenario. So this gave us that at least, which really excited me at the time for some reason. <laughs> well, you'd been waiting for it. You got yeah, it. Got it. Did I need it? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> All it was doing was firing phasers and torpedoes and shields were going down to low percentages, which indicated that the battle wasn't going very well. But you were updated on those percentages and that's what matters. Yeah. And I think Brian Singer gets blown out the wall when the view screen gets blown up. Oh, yeah. He's on the bridge at some point. I don't know if he actually gets blown out into space, but he has a cameo in it because Brian Singer and Patrick Stewart had a connection at that point, I suppose, because of X-Men. Mm. So any final thoughts on Nemesis before we wrap up? I have given you everything I have on Nemesis. <laughs> everything that could possibly be said. Yeah, come back to me in 20 years' time. 20 years' time. What are we going to do next year? We, we could arrange that now. We've done all the next-gen movies. Wrath of Khan and Voyage Home have been done before, as has First Contact. You weren't on First Contact, so there's no reason that we couldn't look back and do those again at some point. Out of the ones that we haven't done, we have one, three... Five, six, that's it. I'm happy to follow your lead where you boldly go. suppose you maybe want a good one. (laughs) Well, yeah, that would be good. Well, six would be a good one. Shall we continue with the swan song theme for next year and do six, the original series swan song? Because the problem is if we did three, you kind of need to watch two because three is essentially a direct sequel to two. I think you can follow it, but any excuse to watch Wrath of Khan, really. (laughs) Okay, six, let's do it. Tune in next year for The Undiscovered Country. We'll do it next year. It's a good one. It's a really good one. It's my favourite, actually. Cool. Well, that should be a good episode. Yeah, so happy First Contact Day next year when it's negative 40 years and we'll 
and talk about Star Trek VI. Yeah, that was us talking about Nemesis. We really ripped the arse out of Nemesis. <laughs> we really did. We really shaved that back hair of that <laughs> film. Angus, thank you for joining for this discussion. Thank you. My pleasure. It's always great to talk Trek with people that don't know it as well as I do, just to get that outsider perspective. <laughs> I'm happy to provide the perspective of ignorance. Absolutely. It's important. Thank you to Captain Meat Shield for the supplied music. And if you like what you heard, then please do hit subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts. It'll be in your feed. You can subscribe. You can rate an app. Apple Podcasts in particular, if you can give us a rating and a comment. But I guess what rating would we like? What is our preferred number? Our preferred number is five. Preferred number is five. Shields it five stars. Five percent. <laughs> Shields it five percent. Yeah, that's less than one star. Shields at five stars, that's what we want. I'm going to stick with that. Please do do that. And if you want to talk about Star Trek Nemesis, Star Trek in general, or anything else, you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or leave comments under the show notes on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. But until next time, we hope you'll boldly join us on Neil Before Pod. Mm-hmm.